So it's the fourth week of Advent, and we've, uh, we've had each week, we've had a different prophet that we've read from. You notice through each of the weeks of Advent, and I commented to the staff this week, four weeks, four different prophets, and you thought we were not for profit. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, it's okay. When you begin the sermon this low, <laughs> keep going go from here, that's right, I like the optimism. Or you're expecting bad things. <laughs> Friends, this morning as we, uh, as we uh, gather around God's Word, as we ponder these words together, I want to give you a little bit of a uh, looking ahead to the future, just a little bit, just a little glimpse of after the new year. I know we're getting ready for uh, Christmas Eve and, and all kinds of different celebrations. We'll have uh, a text that will be pulled uh, from kind of the Epiphany-type uh, text in the next few weeks. But when we get into the new year, uh, we're going to start a series called Hero, and it's going to be going through the book of Judges. And then when we get uh, into Lent, uh, we're going to go through the book of Ruth. And so those, uh, those two books will be back-to-back uh, -back as we go uh, into the season. And so if you find yourself with uh, some additional time uh, during this upcoming season, take a gander. Take a read through Judges and Ruth. Um, get yourself ready for uh, our conversations and ponderings uh, around those texts in the new year. There's a, a Peanuts cartoon in which Lucy is ranting to Charlie Brown. Uh, pretty typical for Lucy uh, at this point, but she's, she's ranting to Charlie Brown. She's, here she is complaining. She says, I hate this year. Everyone said things would be better, but they're not. I don't think this is a new year at all. And she says, I think we've been stuck with a used year. You know, it feels a little bit like we're, we're in another a used year, right, in 2021. I was going back uh, through uh, notes in the past of looking at this text. I, I was asking the question, sometimes when I get to some of these, these texts that we use in, in Advent and ones that show up uh, often throughout uh, the calendars and lectionaries and that sort of thing, I was wondering, when did I preach that last or did I have ever preached this text before? And I saw that nine years ago, this past week, I was preparing a sermon uh, using this very same text. Uh, that's going to tell you one of two things. I've spent time with the text, or you're going to hear a lot of old illustrations. <laughs> well, I was preparing the, that text that week, and I was drawn back to that time, uh, knowing that when I start to write that text, or write the sermon from that text that week, I could never have imagined how that week would have unfolded. If you know, uh, if you've been following the news this past week, you know that nine years ago this past week, a lone gunman walked into Sandy Hook Elementary School on December 14th, 2012, uh, ended up taking the lives of children and staff uh, along with their own life. I had written the sermon. I had to rewrite the sermon after that Friday uh, in preparation for that Sunday. This is the anniversary of that horrible event. And, of course, active shooters still make the headlines even today. In our own day uh, and age, we also add to this the global pandemic that continues to make headlines. I saw that this past week. As you saw earlier in the week, the headlines read that we were coming close uh, to 800,000 dead in our own country from COVID. Um, if you're wondering how big that is, it's a big number, right? But if you wonder how big that is, just imagine Lumen Field filled for a home game, every home game this season, along with every home preseason game, and you almost got to the number. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Of course, the global death toll is far bigger than that. On Thursday, when I looked at it, it was at 5.4 million people. So there's been a lot of death. These sorts of things don't leave us feeling secure or at peace at all. 
Life upended again. That's what the headlines read this morning on CNN. News stories on how to manage our anxiety. Yes, that's what we get as news these days. How to manage your anxiety. Minds wandering into tortured places, wondering perhaps if rest and peace are only for the dead. Like I said, tortured places. The people in Micah's day were asking similar questions. When they're hearing this prophecy, particularly those who read the prophecy and see the reality of it coming to fruition, they're thinking these same types of things. The early chapters of Micah speak of coming judgment, and we know anything about judgment at this point after looking at the prophets. We know that difficult days are ahead, that there's going to be a lot of trouble that's coming down the pike. And chapter 5, verse 1 of Micah will tell us just how difficult things can get. We see a nation that's under siege. Chapter 5, 1, now you are walled around with a wall. It's kind of a repetitive statement there. The noun speaks to a current time of distress. It's setting it apart from what we hear in chapter 4, which is a time of promised blessing and restoration that's to come. But in chapter 5, they're walled in. It seems kind of confusing, so maybe an alternate reading here will be helpful. Other translations, uh, noting there's some discrepancy in the, in the words that we translate between the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation, uh, early on as well as the, the Hebrew and the Masoretic text. There's a little discrepancy in how those translations work together as long, along with the manuscripts themselves. And that discrepancy has led to this other translation that says, marshal your troops. So walled in walls or marshal your troops. Here's the point. The invaders are here. The threat is now. And so we see in the second part of verse 1, siege is laid against us. And that's a terrifying ordeal. We don't necessarily see that in our day because we don't live in walled castles or, or anything of that sort. But an invading army that's about to breach your walls, about to destroy the very thing that you have built for security, about to tear it down, if they're unsuccessful in that, they're just as happy to let you die in that tomb. And so they'll just wait you out. That's not a beautiful place. Starving, sanitation issues, nowhere to go, no place to hide, this is the last stop. That takes you to terrible places when that's where your mind goes, when you see yourself in distress. But it goes on in verse 1, with a rod they strike the ruler of Israel upon the cheek. Insults, injury, those are all things that are pictured here. This person's being disgraced before the eyes of their subjects. Abject humiliation, that's total defeat. Can't even put your hands up because you're being struck in the face at this point. But even worse, the king was traditionally seen as one who meets out justice with the striking of their scepter. That's imagery that comes right from Judaism, from the Hebrew Bible. And what happens here? They themselves will be struck. They're not the ones meeting out justice. It's the empires around. Of course, that's prophetic poetry. That all rhymes and sounds good, right? Here's the historical perspective of what this kind of looks like. You read in 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 1 through 7, at one point in the history of Jerusalem, it is surrounded and put under siege by the Babylonians. And this is what the account says in 2 Kings. It says, Star starvation set in and the city wall was breached. King Zedekiah, who was the king at the time, and his army attempted to flee by night. And as they fled from that city, they were actually overtaken and the king was captured. Now, talking about that disgraced part being struck on the face, the king was sentenced to death, but not right away. Instead, his sons were paraded before him. Each one of them were executed, and then they put out his eyes, and they dragged him off to Babylon. 
Here this former king deposed a blind prisoner. That's pretty bad. That's horrendous. That's horrible. That's what chapter 5, verse 1 pictures for a nation that's under siege and to be defeated. And if that's all we had, if that's where our text was left, if we were left with a fragment from the ancient world, and that's the only portion that survived, we could rightly conclude here that there's no hope. There's no sense for hope then, and there's no sense for hope now. We'd walk away shaking our heads. But here's the thing. We do have more. There's more to the story, as it said. And that more is today's text. That more is chapter 5, verse 2, and reading on. That was all verse 1. But our text begins in verse 2. And we see here that amidst even the most dire situations, we hear in this text that salvation will emerge. And it emerges from what seems to be the most unlikely of places. Now let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever had that experience where you saw something, or you heard something, or maybe even smelled something, and it took you back to another place in another time? Maybe you walked in the house and somebody was cooking something, and you smelled it, and you were there in the house, like you could see yourself physically present, but you were then transported back maybe to your grandmother's home, maybe to your childhood home, or to another place. Have you had that experience? Who's ever had that experience? Right? It's a pretty common experience for us as people. Well, this text here in chapter 5, verse 2, does that kind of thing for the reader. We, of course, we might read it and say, well, it, it doesn't really take me back to grandmother's house. you got to go back a little further than that. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, that takes you back. The prophet's taking you back here. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, right? It's chock full of meaning and significance. We'll sing that next week, and they'll have all kinds of stirrings of emotions of the Christmas story. But we can go back even further than that. And this prophet is, is drawing back to an earlier time beyond and before the Jesus story. Bethlehem Ephrathah is associated with larger-than-life figures and accounts that litter the Hebrew Bible. And when you mention this location, you instantly draw people back to those places. It was on the way to Bethlehem that the patriarch Jacob's favored wife, Rachel, was buried. Right? We go back to big names, big people. It was in Bethlehem that Ruth, a widowed foreigner, married Boaz and raised a family. That's Bethlehem. Her grandson, Jesse, is called Jesse of Bethlehem. And it was to his household that the prophet Samuel goes to anoint the future king of the nation. That king being David. And of course, that celebrated king and ruler was described as a man after God's own heart. The prophet signals in our text here that Bethlehem will once again be the hub of divine activity. That God's going to do something again in Bethlehem. It's coming. God's worked there before. God is going to work again at this same place. But this time, it's going to be the raising of a better kind of leader. Not one like Micah knew in his day. The leaders who could be described as those who hate good and love evil. The powerful who were corrupt, abusive, unfaithful, and unjust, according to Micah chapter 3. But rather, something is going to have to be done 
And that's going to happen around this Bethlehem. Of course, that something is going to draw on ancient promises. That something is going to be drawing on what God has done and said in the past. And we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the prophet named Nathan declares that David's ancestors will have a claim to the throne in perpetuity. That promise Micah is drawing back to, drawing our attention back to that place. But location is not the only reference we have here. So you think about older promises and you can say, okay, well, that's a location. Maybe it's just a mere coincidence. Maybe the, maybe the prophet just happened to throw Bethlehem. He likes the, he'd been there once before. He liked it. It was a, a nice place to visit. Maybe just tossed it in there, you know, just to fill out the story. But no, we can see the prophet is trying to draw our attention to this place and to this time and to these promises. Because we know in their way back imagination, they'll talk about one who is to rule in verse 2. And that word that's used there, that underlying word, actually draws on a much older word than a couple that we see in the text already. The word for king, Melech, um, there's another word that's used here for a judge. Each of these words are, are newer than the word that he actually uses here for ruler. He's drawing back to this primitive word for good reason. Amidst corruption and fear, amidst the insecurity of the day and the coming destruction, the prophet wants the people to be reminded of a time long ago. He wants to take, the, take them back to a better place. Not just for nostalgia reasons, it's not for that purpose, but rather to take them back to old places like Bethlehem, using old words like rulers uh, that we have translated here, and now with statements like this, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He's taking them back. The prophet is saying, remember David. Don't forget David. Remember David. I said it three times so we could remember it. That was what that was for. He's like, enough, Jimmy. Enough with the Davids. But even more, he's saying here, remember God's promise to David. No matter what you see around you, no matter what you hear, no matter what you smell, the sights, the sounds, the smells of agony and destruction, of what this siege might bring before you, no matter what life might throw at you, no matter what the headlines say, he wants us to remember David. In so doing, for, also, for us also to remember God's promises. Because God hasn't forgotten. Because God hasn't forgotten the promises that were made. And it's God who will raise up a better David to lead his people. And Micah isn't alone in that. Isaiah will actually pick up the same theme in Isaiah chapter 11. Now that all sounds fine and good. Thank you for the stroll down memory lane. Thank you for the Bible survey, Jimmy. Really appreciate that. Not sure that helps me now in a global pandemic. How is this supposed to work for me? Well, here's the answer. It's coming. The promises are coming. These promises made way back when are coming. Of course, the difficult thing here for us in verse 3 is this. It's not really clear when. Note what it says in verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth. Then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel. And I wrote here in my notes, uh, what? <laughs> it says, uh, with three dots and then what? It's helpful here to go back to Micah chapter 4. 
take a stroll back there. There you see the same labor imagery that's used. And there we find an association with exile. That the people here are going to go into exile, but that same exile is going to be followed by deliverance. Understood in this way, the new David emerges in a future time after they have been given up, as we see in verse 3. If anyone was hoping to be completely insulated and rescued from judgment, that was their hope, as their hope was to not to avoid all the pain that they see here in the short run, they're going to be disappointed. Because that's not what the prophecy says, that this would come as disappointing news to them. But the news does not remain dire. Instead, the people experience the consequences of what they have coming, and we see that throughout the prophets. They're going to experience those consequences, but they're also promised the future they don't deserve, and that's God's grace at work, offering them a future freedom, and that future envisions a time when the people will come under the rule of the one who, in verse 4, shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And we find in this language coronation, like a king, but also the familiar Near Eastern imagery of a shepherd ruler. As far, as far from abandoned by God. Rather, we have here that we see a people who under this ruler is blessed because this ruler is blessed. This ruler has been endowed by God and anointed by God. And what's more here, they're not corrupt, but rather they're a true covenant-keeping king. And when that happens, the people experience blessing to the greatest degree. The throne here, of course, is established by God, and of course, that throne is forever. And here's the big news the people are waiting for. And they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Living secure is a, familiar, is a, is a promise that was made, a fulfillment of a promise back in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7 that was made to David's descendants. And at the same time, this new ruler's kingdom is going to be bigger than David's. Even better. It's not a regional power here, but rather this is a global kingdom. And of course the question comes, who possibly could fill these shoes? Who could be that person? And everybody who's ever been to Sunday school shouts out at one time, Jesus. Right? The Jesus answer. But in case there was any doubt, if there's any doubt in this Advent season who fills these shoes, Matthew's gospel records the story of Magi who come from the east to visit the one who had been born. And as they come and speak with the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they look to see where the Messiah was born. And as they discover and they discuss those, we see the response in Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Bethlehem. And what was that based on? Of course, it was based on Micah 5. The gospel writer wants us to hear this morning that the coming ruler whose kingdom will span all the world is none other than the one that we know as Jesus. And he shall be the one of peace, our shalom, the one who will bring an end to war and turmoil, but who will also bring healing and renewal and restoration to our lives, to the world, to people, to places. That's what's coming and that's also what has already begun. Returning back to Lucy and Charlie Brown. Lucy says to Charlie Brown in one particular comic strip, I hate everything. 
I hate everybody. I hate the whole wide world. <laughs> that sounds like her, right? And Charlie says to her, but I thought you had inner peace. She says, I do have inner peace, but I still have outer obnoxiousness. <laughs> Friends, that's our struggle, right? Christ is our peace. Jesus Christ provides to you and me a life that is renewed and transformed in a season of waiting. And as we prepare for celebrations of Christmas, in one sense, we hold the answer in one hand. In the other, we hold a question, many questions in the other. We wrestle with the sense of being a people that have experienced God's peace. We also wrestle with our own outer obnoxiousness, those questions. Our prayer continues in this Advent season to be a prayer that we've had throughout. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come to a people who are waiting. Come to a people who feel they are under siege. Come to a people who are in need of your peace. A people who by faith trust that you, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is our peace. May it be so.